Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to Deep in History. I'm Marcus Grodi, your host for this program, and joined by Monsignor Jeffrey Steenson. And uh, uh, Monsignor, I pray for you every day because during this difficult time, not only of the COVID virus pandemic, but the the craziness of violence in our country, you're really up there close to the the center of some of it. We haven't seen any evidence of it here, where we are in St. Paul anyway, so... It's kind of located just south of downtown Minneapolis, where all that is. Yeah, it's just a crazy time we're in, everybody, and yeah. what it means, and um, uh, you know, in a, in a, if you will, a teleological perspective. In other words, in, in the purpose of everything and the big scheme of things is is crazy. And, and we're going to look at uh, continue with our study of against heresies by Irenaeus, written uh, nineteen. Oh, excuse me. Uh, in 175, not 1975, 175 A.D., uh, a long time ago. And if you will, um, there were things happening in his world not all that different than what we're going through. Isn't that right, Monsignor? That's correct, yeah. Um, There's nothing new under the sun. Yeah, I mean, there was persecution, and the plague was right around the corner, and they had a different attitude towards life and and what to expect out of life than we are today. Most of the things people are fighting for today, uh, their rights, uh, Irenaeus never dreamed of having, uh, you know, electricity, <laughs> you know, running water, uh, what's that? You know, so um, indoor plumbing, I mean, Irenaeus didn't have that. The whole time he wrote his book, he didn't have indoor plumbing, just think about that. So... Uh, we're going to continue with book two. And before we jump in, I and Monsignor, I really want your thoughts on this. Um, we had we had made the comment, at least last week, maybe the, also the week before, that we were hoping to get through book two as quickly as possible so we could get to the gems of book three. And in the last program, I I really felt unprepared in some ways. I mean, I, I am the first to recognize that I am the red skeleton of patristic scholars, so I, I know that. So we're, I'm here because I, I love the early fathers and have learned a lot from them, but I've not, I'm not a, a studied scholar as you are. But So in prepare, preparation for this week, I decided I'm going to take time to dig deeper into book two, for the remainder of book two. So I made sure I pulled out a few gems. But what I found were 13 pages of them. And the, and the reason was because I, I was thinking that an important approach to the early church fathers is different than what might often be done in a patristics class. And I've never taken one, Monsignor, so you can affirm or, or defirm. But it seems to me if you're if you're in a patristics class and you're studying Irenaeus against heresies, you're studying the literature behind it, Plato uh, and, and all the Greek philosophers, then you're studying the writings of the 
early Gnostics, that your focus will be on the specific teachings of Simon Magnus and Marcion and Valentinus and the Bellicides and and uh, Fred the Tread or the different guys that were these different. And then specifically, how did Irenaeus answer them? And then after you studied those, and then you would cram the night before the final exam so that when you had the essay test, you'd have to say, okay, what did Valentinus teach about blah, 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 and how did Irenaeus answer it? And the more I thought about that, I said, the problem with that is in the big scheme of things, those really don't make any difference to me or to most of the people today, which I think is part of the reason why people get put off by these great writings. You know, what do I care about what Valentinus said 1,800 years ago, They might, a person might say. But what seemed to me most important was to take a step back and examine the underlying convictions of Irenaeus. What were the doctrines and the theology and, if you will, the philosophy that that fed Irenaeus at this point in the history of the church that in a way becomes a foundation for everything that comes later that really does feed our life. I mean, they formed the foundation of how he answered Valentinus, but what's more important than his actual answer is what led to it. Does that make sense, Monsignor? Yeah, and I think I think people should always bear in mind um, how close he is to the apostolic church. Uh, you know, St. John the Evangelist is effectively Irenaeus's spiritual grandfather. Yeah, yeah. Almost literally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so there's a there's a freshness there and. Um, I can't help but think, you know, he didn't learn how to do this studying in some university somewhere or some academic place. He, he has effectively learned to do theology at the foot of the apostles. He learned it from Polycarp, who learned it from John. Yeah. But he also learned it as a practicing bishop in a town and, that had been martyred, right? That's right. And he was sent to... He was sent west um, as a missionary. He basically joined a mission team that went to went to Italy, and then up to up to Gaul. In a wonderful book, I highly recommend called "The Soul of the Apostolate," written about a hundred years ago. Um, in that book, the author quotes—I can't think of his name—Dom. Was his name Marcion? Oh. No, I have something like that. But anyway, I forget. But he he quotes St. Benedict, and he said that very often we're called to be channels of God's grace and love, but in fact, we are called to be reservoirs. And what he meant by that was that, yes, what we receive from God should flow out of us to other people. But he talked about the value of the reservoir of that which we've experienced and we've learned and we've received from God. That's what comes out. Mm -hmm. And so when I think about us studying Book two, 
If we only looked at what the Gnostics believed and how Irenaeus answered them, we'd be just looking at the channel. But what I'd like us to look at is the reservoir. Does okay. that make sense? I do. Yeah, it does. So I've picked out 13, eight and a half by 11 pages of quotes from the rest of book two that we thought we were just going to jump over to so we get to step three. And I'm thinking that these are worth looking at. And what okay. I'm going to do, for those of you listening, I've picked these out, and then mostly I'm going to then pass them on to Monsignor to, to reflect on, but I'm going to explain the reasons why I've chosen these. And I do believe that these give us a glimpse into the thinking and the theology and even the doctrine of the early church uh, that we we take for granted now, 1,800 years later. And we don't realize that they had to fight for these things. So, now I'm going to be reading from a different translation, but it's not a problem. Um, and the reason is that I the 13 pages that I picked out, that I printed out, copied and pasted, I couldn't get a good version of the Keeble for me to use. So I'm using the translation of the of Irenaeus, that's in the anti, anti the anti Nicene Fathers series, and, yeah. and that entire set of books is available for your down free download from the New Advent website. Just go to New Advent, look up the Fathers, go to Irenaeus, click on Against Heresies, and there's the whole thing. So, so Monsignor, you're looking at Keeble's translation. I'm going to read from this, and then. And then I'll, I'll, I'll give a short explanation of, of why I've chosen this, and then I'd love your thoughts, Monsignor. Okay. So the first, okay. the first quote that I'm going to is, these are all from book two, chapter 17, paragraph one, and that's on page 137 of Keeble's translation. And here's what Irenaeus says. And he's been, of course, going through all of the, the Gnostics. So here's what he says. Having then so great incongruities and perplexities in the order implied by their pleroma. And then he jumps ahead a little bit. Let us go on to consider the rest. We too, because of their folly, inquiring about the things which are not, and doing this too of necessity, because the care of this subject is entrusted to us. And we would have all men to come to the knowledge of the truth, and then also, because thou thyself hast requested to receive from us many and various topics for refuting them. Now, Monsignor, here's why I picked out that passage. Two reasons. Number one, it expressed Irenaeus' recognition of his responsibility as a bishop to help his people in the midst of this crisis. That's what he said. Because the care of this subject is entrusted to us. To us. I love that. It almost mm -hmm. sounds like the papal we. To us. And we would have all men to come to the knowledge of the truth. So here we have Irenaeus writing this book for the benefit of his people who are struggling with all these weird ideas all around them like we are today with the internet. But he also wants Valentinus and Marcion and Belicides and to come to the truth. 
That's, that's his responsibility as a bishop. The second reason that I would like your thoughts is this word pleroma. Mm-hmm. We see it all the time when we're all through this book. We keep running into their pleroma and what, what's with the pleroma? And I would direct your attention to a scripture, Ephesians 3, 13 through 19. Now let me read this. This is St. Paul writing, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with might through his Spirit in the inner man, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have power to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And that word fullness is pleroma. Is pleroma. So in other words, pleroma is a very biblical term. And the question to this day people struggle with, what does Paul mean? How do I experience the fullness of God? How am I filled? And that word that you may be filled is pleroma also. It's pleurothete, the verb. Mm-hmm. How are you filled? And if you will, that whole paragraph by Paul is this whole thing that Irenaeus is doing, that they may come on the knees, that they would come to have this intimate relationship. That's what, in, in essence, I would say that's what Valentinus and Simon and Marcion and all of those guys wanted. But they went after it based on the wrong foundations. Uh, those two points are, thank you for making those. Um, I think maybe just to just touch base first with Irenaeus writing as a bishop here. Yeah. Um, most people, most um, scholars think that his audience are not ordinary. Um, it's not the ordinary faithful that he's writing to it. Uh, it's a little bit um, over the heads of your your typical <laughs> peasant, <laughs> you, know, you know, day worker in Lyon or Lagdunum. Um, well, I, I would but, remind our audience that they weren't <laughs> called laity in those days. They were called plebes. <laughs> that was the Latin word. They were plebes. <laughs> we were, I was a plebe. You're not a plebe. I'm a plebe. <laughs> I've forgotten that. Thank yep. you. Yep. I have to, I, that's worth, Spending a little time this afternoon <laughs> looking up the Greek words on that too. Um, well, but so he, he, but he's he's writing two bishops probably, you know, regional bishop surrounding him in his whatever the area is, you know, and um, and reminding them all that this is a sacred call they have to. Um, to answer these things, and to, because it's causing terrible disruption in the church, so so the care of this subject is entrusted to us. He's talking about, yeah, the bishops. Okay. Now, play Roma. Yeah, I, that is a, it. Is a it's an amazing term. Um, 
so is he's he's trying now to have a conversation with um, the Gnostics in some ways. So when a Gnostic talks about a pleroma, um, the pleroma means a universe. Um, if you want to break it down a little bit more, you could call it a solar system, I suppose. Um, but so, you know, um, and they have that idea that there's a universe that stands behind a universe that stands behind a universe. And all of these universes came into being in succession because um, those eons, those, you know, those godlike creatures that occupied them had sex with each other. And then their secretions created the, the next. So the idea is all of that multiplicity is evil. So let's get back to the, whatever the original one was. And, and so there, that's, you know, they keep talking about, you know, I want to, let's get back to the, the universe before the universe. Yeah. Because the, again, the constant struggle was bringing together this idea of, of a perfect original being and then this world we see around us. Right. How do they connect? And and they can't, you know, the uh, St. Irenaeus, I think, is brilliant on this point. He says, you, the Gnostic system simply can't work because you can't ever stop. Yeah. Um, there always has to be something before. Um, and because, you yeah. I was gonna say, and they, and and they, you know, last week I was quite taken with this. Last week when I was reading this, um, it's fascinating that the Gnostics would believe that you and I are consubstantial with our Maker. Not, of course, in the body, but in the in our souls, yeah. and so. Now they've got a huge problem because all of the sinfulness that is that is surrounds us that gets attributed back to our creator. Um, so it's just a it's just one gigantic mess. You, you know, Monsignor, that's great. You brought that up because we may get to it today. But one of the quotes that I have a section he talks about body and soul and spirit and transmigration of these things and. You know, he's getting into this very issue. How do they deal with this? Um, and it still goes on today. I mean, you know, people today that struggle with the reality of a creator, well, where'd he come from? There's got to be someone before him. Well, then where'd that person come from or whatever? So today we have people with all different ideas, maybe ideas that were different than the Gnostics, but different ideas to explain our existence. And I, one of my favorite writers of agrarian farming books, um, and I have a whole library of them, but the, the author I always come back to passed away a couple years ago. And he was, wrote many books, and he was a cradle Catholic who went to Francis, a Franciscan seminary and then dropped out and eventually dropped out of his faith, became a prolific writer in farming and Mother Earth News stuff and all this stuff. And, 
And uh, his final book, which I read, I wrote, I sent him a copy of my book, and I exchanged mails with a little bit, but he, he really wasn't interested. In his final book, he makes this comment. He said, look, he said, I really don't know where we came from, and I don't care. And I really don't know where we're going, and I don't care. But all I know is that when I die, I'll become fertilizer, and I'll repay to Mother Earth all the damage that I've done to her all my life. And, you know, my point is that it's these kind of issues that have been around for thousands of years. For sure. That people struggle Absolutely. with. You know, I, uh, last, this last week uh, up here in northern Minnesota, um, the dragonflies came out. Oh. And it's just it's spectacular to see them sitting on the porch. And, you know, they're everywhere. And... Um, I, I was thinking about some of these early Platonists of this time um, would believe that, um, you know, if you really screwed up bad in this life, in the next life, you might come back as a cockroach or as <laughs> <laughs> some lower life. And, you know, the idea is you got to, through your successive stages in life, you, you want to work up to um, a higher level mode of existence and uh yeah <laughs> oh it's pretty crazy well in this first quote you know I, the two things the authority of a bishop who's who's holding tight to the apostolic succession mm-hmm. the truth and that this is all throughout Irenaeus and he's as you said he's reminding the bishops their responsibility to hold on to this apostolic deposit of faith because we're fighting a battle of these conflicting ideas. And one of these conflicting ideas is an understanding of what it means to be filled with the fullness of God. Because that's our goal. That's our goal, Paul says, to be filled with the fullness of God. What does that mean? And... And may I just throw out a thought here? Yeah. Um, since you, you you beautifully put this, it just hit me. What I think St. Paul might mean by this is that we actually have a keen sense that we are truly in the presence of God and, and the air around us is charged with yeah. his glory. I mean, it's, it's, it's something that physical almost, if you will. Yeah. So given that, I mean, just hold on to that. Those of you that are, hold on to this idea of being, being intimate with God, being his presence. To, so how do you know that? How do you, how do you get there? Who do you listen to? Mm-hmm. Remember when he wrote this, there were no catechisms. None of the consuls, the major consuls that happened yet to define all the bigger issues that we take for granted. So how did those people that God loved, as, as, as he says, that those bishops together, their responsibility is so that all men to come to the knowledge of the truth, how do you do that? How do you make sure? That's why he went to all the effort in this book. Okay, we go to his second quote. Just jump ahead a little bit. Still in in uh, section uh, 
17, but section 8, chapter 17, 8, on page 140. All right. Here's what he says. And again, I'm reading from the apostolic, the anti-Nicene father translation. It could not be then that the word being in the third stage of production was ignorant of the father, as these teach. For this many perhaps be thought probable in the birth of men, this may be thought probable in the birth of men, being they are often ignorant of their own parents. But in the word of the Father, it is altogether impossible. Now, Monsignor, first of all, what is he getting at that the, that the word being in the third stage of production? Yeah, the um, Gnostics had they had the father and then emanating from the father is mind um, and then emanating from mind is word um, there's a fascinating philosophical thing behind that that we don't want to get you don't want me to go down that road but um, but uh, basically you know what is what he's done he's 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 now put the word two stages removed from the father, yeah. um, and um, and one of the issues yeah. that these Gnostics dealt with when they came up of all these emanations was did emanation number seventeen know emanation number sixteen, fifteen, fourteen, thirteen, or whatever? Because they had to have all these distances that would somehow explain how a perfect creator could have any contact with this sinful world. And the more stages they could put in between, the more they felt they were clarifying this problem, right? And, but the reason I picked this one out particularly is that to a certain extent, this idea doesn't go away. This oh, idea no. that did Jesus know the Father? Right, Monsignor? It doesn't go away. That's right. That's right. Um, and this will come up in the Trinitarian debates in the in the next generations. But this stuff, they were dealing with this at that at the time of Irenaeus. So you have you have the Father, and the Father thinks, and that's mind, and then um, the mind speaks, and that's your word. So um, I guess it's a Stoic idea. Have you ever heard Logos um, endiothetos and Logos prophoricos, um, the, the indwelling word and the spoken word? Mm. And what's so important here um, for the theology of the church is that the word who is Jesus, who is Christ, the eternal Christ, was always with the Father. He's not something that happened, you know, two steps removed from the Father. Yeah. And I think St. Irenaeus is getting into that in this passage as well. Yeah, How important a, that is. This yeah. is 175. Uh, within 100 years, we're going to have a man by the name of Aaron, Arius. Arius, yeah. And others, you know, we have some that say that Jesus was not, really nothing more than a man that God 
chose to receive his spirit and then live this life, and then before he dies on the cross, the spirit leaves. And it's just so. But so, but did this man know God before? Nor the no, he just was a random dude. And that I forget what that's 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 that's, that's adoptionism. That's adoptionism. You know, and that you would, got it. That would come. You got up. it. Now, Arius's view is a little different than adoptionism, right? Monster? Yeah, yeah. I mean, he, there were similarities, and sometimes Arius seemed to diverge on it in a way. Um, but basically, Arius b- believed um, not that Jesus was just sort of adopted, Jesus of Nazareth was adopted. He believed that Jesus was created before everything else that existed, but he was still the first creature and, and therefore not truly God. And so therefore, one of the issues they dealt with when they had the Council of Nicaea, when Arius stood up to defend himself, was this question that whether the Jesus knew the Father, and that was one of the issues that he talked that Arius. Yeah, he said Arius actually admitted that he didn't know the Father, that he was ignorant of the. It's whatever the Father chose to share with him, but he had no inside knowledge of the Father other than that, other than by grace, if you will. And when Arius stood before the consul, he quoted Scripture because he said that Scripture says that only the Father knew yeah. the day and the hour, not the angels not the, and not the Son of Man. And so the, the problem with Arius and adoptionism and so many of these early heretics is that they were, if you will, sola scriptura people. They were trying to take Scripture seriously, and we give them the benefit of the doubt. They were just not scoundrels, but they, they des- we assume they desired to do what was right, to interpret Scripture correctly. And when you go with Scripture alone, you, you do have a hard time with coming up with the Trinitarian formula with Scripture alone. Because Jesus said he didn't know. Well, then how do you answer that? Or when it, in, in Philippians 2, when it says, emptying himself, he became a servant. Rather than grasping his divinity, he emptied himself, the word kenosis, to become a servant, a servant unto the cross. Well, what did Jesus let go of? You know, he was omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent. And then he becomes a human being. So how do we describe that? Well, apart from the authority of the bishops, you've got ideas all over the place. Right, Monsignor? That's right. Everyone is his own chief justice in these matters. (laughs) And that's what Irenaeus was trying to deal with in the cusp of this period before the major councils were really dealing with it. And and, and so in this point, I also wanted to point out that this idea, whether Jesus knew the Father, whether even Jesus knew who he was, remains a theological problem to this day, doesn't it, Monsignor? There are theologians that question whether Jesus knew who he was. 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, very recent examples of that. Um, um, I won't name names, but <laughs> they're out there. They're yeah. out there teaching in university faculties. And um, yeah. yeah, did you know? I remember way back in the in the early seventies. Uh, when the movie Jesus Christ Superstar came out, it was, of course, a play first, and then the movie, and really the movie is essentially the gospel according to Judas, is really what it is. It's not based yeah. on the original gospel of Judas, the apocryphal gospel, but it's looking at it through the eyes of Judas. But you, when you watch that, you get this idea of, did he really know who he was? Uh, are Judas is saying, are, are, are you who they say you are? Jesus Christ superstar? Uh, I can't remember. The, do you know? Are you who they say you are? And, uh, and and you get this idea that what did Jesus think of himself as a failure? If you take away from the teaching of the church, and it was there and it continues, and partially because we have the same enemy. All right, Monsignor, one other thing. Let's okay. go to the next one. And this is uh, in chapter 19, section 2 on page 147. Um, he writes, It really seems to me that, with a view to such opinions, the Lord himself expressed thus, For every idle word that men speak, they shall give account on the day of judgment. From Matthew 12, 36. For all teachers of a like character to these, who fill men's ears with idle talk, shall, when they stand at the throne of judgment, render an account for those things which they have vainly imagined, and falsely uttered against the Lord. What's some wisdom in that, Monsignor? <laughs> well, I think, you know, we're going to meet up with this quite often now in book two, is, is um, our saints call for humility when we approach the truth, um, that we put aside preconceptions and all the all of our baggage, and we just, we are there to learn, to listen. You, you pointed that out the other day when we were talking how, you know, our, our call is not to um, exhaust the depths of the mystery of God. Our call is to always be open to learn, and we'll never, we, we aren't capable of holding all the truth. And... You know, echoing what our Lord said in Matthew 12, for all teachers shall, when they stand at the throne of judgment, render an account for those things which they have vainly imagined and falsely uttered against the Lord. So it's a, we need to learn, but we need to be very careful what we say because we'll be held accountable we are not accountable for what people decide to do with what we say. But if they follow us and we've led them wrong, that's us. It's, it's, a, it's a very important responsibility laid on. And, and again, he's talking you know. to 
bishops. And that's why I know, Monsignor, that uh, in the Liturgy of the Hours, uh, that, that they do quote from the prophets that remind the bishops and the priests about being watchmen. Yeah. Watchmen. Because if a watchman doesn't tell, he's responsible for what happens. We're responsible is, to tell. Don't you think this is the most terrifying thing that our bishops must have to face now? Um, because, you know, it seems like they are making their peace with certain things in, in the social world that um, are, you can't, well, you know, they won't stand in the judgment. Yeah. So we'll uh, be, all of us, for them. I mean, the bishops yeah. we pray for, but us too, all yeah. of us, every one of us, will be accountable for what we say and what we don't when we have a responsibility to speak up. We will. And here Irenaeus is talking to all these men, and I'm going on the idea that Irenaeus recognizes that many of these men began as sincere Christians. Many of them were a part of the church. As First John says, when, you know, they were a part of us, but then they left. And we know they're not a part of us because they left us. And if they'd been a part yeah. of us, they wouldn't have left us. That's what John says in First John. Yeah. And he's referring to, eventually to these very people. They were a part of us, but then they broke away. And so in the way Irenaeus is reaching out to them, do you know every person you take along with you, you are responsible for? And I would say today, when if we don't, if we're not happy with what the bishops are saying, and we're publicly critical of them and pull people away from them, we are responsible. Good point. I'm always reminded of when I find myself being critical. And Monsignor, you know me. I'm never a critical person of the bishops, ever. No. <laughs> At least not publicly. But it's because I remember what what Dave, came to David's mind when he was standing over the sleeping Saul. And he could have put the spear home into Saul. And what did he say? I cannot touch God's anointed. And we recognize that responsibility with our bishops and our leaders. All right, Monsignor, let's get one more in today, all right? Okay, one very good. More. We'll jump okay. s- same chapter. But section 8, and it's, it begins on page 150 and goes over to 151. And uh, this, I love this analogy here, Father. And I'm wondering, as I read this, uh, whether from your studies this, this comes to light from other things you've read. Here's what he says. Irenaeus says, As to the point, then, that their system is weak and untenable as well as utterly chimerical— Enough has been said. So I love that. Let me pause for a second. I love that because (laughs) he's basically saying, I've already waxed far too eloquently here. Let's move on. So he says that. But he said, but for it is not needful to use a common proverb that one should drink up the ocean who wishes to learn that its water is salt. But 
just as in the case of a statue which is made of clay but colored on the outside that it may be thought to be of gold, while it really is of clay, anyone who takes out of it a small particle and thus laying it open reveals the clay will set free those who seek the truth from a false opinion. In the same way have I, by exposing not a small part only, but the several heads of their system, which are of the greatest importance, shown to as many as do not wish willingly to be led astray what is wicked, deceitful, seductive, and pernicious connected with the school of Valentinians. And all those other heretics who promulgate wicked opinions respecting the demiurge, that is, the fashioner and former of this universe, and who is, in fact, the only true God, exhibiting as I have done, how easily their views are overthrown. Your thoughts, Monsignor? I, I, yeah, that was a wonderful passage. I marked that, too. Um, I thought of, um, it's... A passage, I can't remember exactly where in the Confessions of St. Augustine it is, but he talks about how he eventually broke away from the Manichaean heresy that he got involved with as a young man in Carthage. And it was just little, it was just little, just as Irenaeus says here, just little chips in the, yeah. in the veneer. And suddenly the whole system just fell apart. And I think I think we can see that so far in what we've read in Against Heresies. Um, this is the patient technique that Irenaeus uses is um, just just keep poking holes what, in this thing, you know. What is that? What comes to my mind, and I can't remember the actual dialogue, but that wonderful scene in the Maltese Falcon. Oh, I haven't watched that oh, or read that for years. But so. <laughs> you know, after the, the whole time, they're you know they're all about getting this statue because it's supposed to be gold underneath a black covering, and the whole movie is all this intrigue and about it. And finally, at the end, um, they get it, and they, they you know Peter Lorre and and I forget the other guy, you know, they, they finally get it and they, 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 they rip off the paper and there it is and they're excited and, and they're, they've got it, they finally got it. And then um, he pulls out a knife and he starts scratching it to weigh the black paint, to reveal the gold, and it's just clay. <laughs> and they go bizarre. And there's that famous line at the end when, when oh, shoot, I wish I get it right, when Humphrey Bogart said these are the things that, uh, pride or life or, or, or lust are, are made of. You know, it makes a great line, but that's kind of what he's talking about here. You know, you just scrape away a little bit and you see what it's really made of. You know, Marcus, too, think about how um, a sect does spiritual direction and how, the, how Christians, Orthodox Christians, do spiritual direction. Um, in a sect, if you have... Um, <clears throat> the neophytes, those that are trying to learn the system, if they start doubting, they get somebody comes on them pretty heavy. Yep. You know, they they um, you know, they're either going to toe the line or they're drummed out. In the church, because we believe, you know, this is this is a journey. Yep. 
that you take the person that's struggling, you love them, you help them understand that, um, um, you know, we're all standing underneath a great mystery. And I just, I've learned something from St. Irenaeus here on this, how, how important it is to never lose sight of that fact. Well, in this, it, yeah. you may be in closing today's section with just this thing. It reminds us as followers of Christ, St. Paul, after he describes um, in Philippians 3 about, I'm not, I'm not perfect yet. I've not yeah. arrived yet. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, I press forward, onward, to the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Philippians 3, I can't remember the Yeah. Anybody admits, I'm not perfect yet, but I'm, that's my trajectory. And the next line is, those of you who are mature do likewise. Right? But, right. And, and, but the, our Gnostic friends, they don't, they don't leave any room for that because they have to be perfect from the get-go because they're the elect. <laughs> yeah. And it, to me, it brings it all the way to now, to our leaders. If we scratch the surface, what do we find? If we scratch the surface, what do we find? You don't have to read, you don't have to swallow the entire ocean to know it's salt water. You scratch our leaders, which should drive our leaders to be imitators of Paul, to be very public about the idea that I am a sinner. I am not perfect. But my one goal in life is by God's mercy and grace and sacraments, I can forget what lies behind and press onward yeah. to the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And that's what St. Irenaeus is calling these Gnostics to come home and do, and for these bishops to call. And that's why he's writing this book. Monsignor, why don't we pause there? We'll okay. pick up again. Uh, next week, we'll look at chapter 22 of book. Chapter 20 and 22 of book. We'll start there. But could you close us with a, a blessing? Yes. Um, well, I'd like to, I, I found a prayer. Um, I have this lovely little prayer book, a manual of prayers, that's used by the uh, North American College in Rome. Yep. And this is a, a prayer, um, prayer before study. Oh, this point, prayer after study. But this is from Origen, you know, who's yeah. just a few years down the road about scripture. Lord, inspire us to read your scriptures and to meditate upon them day and night. We beg you to give us real understanding of what we need, that we in turn may put its precepts into practice. Yet we know that understanding and good intentions are worthless unless rooted in your graceful love. So we ask that the words of scripture may also be not just signs on a page, but channels of grace into our hearts. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right.
Thank you, Monsignor. Thank you for joining me on the program, Monsignor. And, and all of you watching, thank you. I hope this has been an encouragement to you. Please let us know on uh, chnetwork.org uh, if you have any questions or comments or something you'd like us to cover uh, in this program. Please let us know. Thank you. Look forward to being with you again. Thanks, Bye. Man.